Good morning. You're just in time. Welcome to the St. Gabriel Cafe, your sacred space to sip on today's local blend of faithful encouragement. Let's start our day together. Good morning. Come on in, pull up a chair. I'm Dave Orsborn. And I'm Amanda Miller, and we are thrilled to have you with us in the St. Gabriel Cafe, our live and local morning show. Mr. Cameron Clutter is our barista, and today the church celebrates the feast day of St. Elizabeth of Hungary, Franciscan Tertiary. And this year we also celebrate the 30th anniversary of St. John Paul II's encyclical Veritatis Splendor. Why is that important? Because we have two guests with us, our friends, Father Daniel Bowen and Dr. Perry Cajal. Did I get it right? Yes, are with us in the cafe to help us unwrap and revisit this important church document on moral theology. All right. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Shall we pray? Yes. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Mm. Lord, we, we thank you for another day. We thank you for your goodness, for your graces for the way that you are sustaining each and every one of us and showering down your love upon us. We ask that you just help us to know you more, to love you more, to see truth and follow truth, to see you and follow you. We ask that you help us in each particular moment of our day, especially those parts of our day that might get a little rough, we just help us to remember to turn to you in those moments, and especially to rejoice with you in those moments that are, are worthy of gratitude and rejoicing. We offer, offer our day to you, and we say this all through the intercession of Mary, and in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So, Amanda? Yeah. Yesterday, we learned something very important. Yes, we did. Uh, <laughs> I suppose you're referring to the tea incident. I am. The tea incident, as it's known now in the cafe. Yes, yes. So um, I was, I'm feeling a little under the weather, so prayers would be appreciated. But so yesterday, I thought I would be proactive. And so I, th- I found some blueberry tea in our kitchen. So I thought, this is perfect. Blueberries have all these antioxidants. I'm going to drink this herbal tea all day. And I'm going to be so hydrated. And it's just going to be great. All day is very important <laughs> for the <day>. story. <laughs> but, but I also, because it's a loose tea. So I, how am I going to use this? So I found we actually have like a little... Um, teapot with a mesh thing in it and everything so I was like I was so excited I'm a tea person so I got to sit at my desk with a teapot all day (laughs) um and I kept on refilling refilling it and then I started to realize you know it it is a little bitter this is around like two o'clock already it's (laughs) a little bitter maybe I should just check I haven't been drinking green tea all day that would be unfortunate uh because you know the caffeine content (laughs) I look at the box, it says black tea, and I'm like, I've been dehydrating myself literally all day. (laughs) So, um, that is the tea incident of 2023, I've learned. (laughs) So the takeaway there is not all 
<laughs> herbal sounding teas are actually right. herbal. It's true. Right. <laughs> so this morning I um I have mint tea. I'm pretty sure that's herbal. Did you check? <laughs> I mean, it's a mint. <laughs> yeah, no, I should. I should make sure to check every time now. <laughs> Especially if it's in our cupboard. <laughs> we kind of go for the caffeine varieties here. Right. So. Uh, and last night you, well, when Brother Michael was in a couple days ago, we were talking yeah. about off air. I think it was after the, uh, after the show ended about Shia LaBeouf, mm -hmm. uh, the Hollywood actor, and his uh, the interview that Bishop Robert Barron did with him. Yeah, and I didn't realize he had this whole conversion story. I knew he was diving into Catholicism because of his role um, with you know, Padre Pio, mm -hmm. but I didn't realize how to what depth it was, which was so beautiful. And so you had mentioned the Father Robert Barron interview, and so I went and listened to it, and it was quite good. It was quite good. And just the journey that he's on um, is really beautiful. And the goodness of God, right? This idea of being in such a, just an industry where there seems to be little hope, mm -hmm. but God wants to draw us from every aspect of life, even when hope seems lost, right? Yeah. Um, but what I also loved about this story that we were talking about, I think, Cam, you were the one that had mentioned a family that was had been praying for Shia for years, or maybe it was Brother who had mentioned it. it yeah, come to find out that a family had been praying for him for years. And I, by like, name specifically, by name yeah. specifically, they had just decided we're going to choose someone, some famous person, and start praying for them. And and look at the results. Yeah, come on, I just. I'm blown away, and so I'm convicted that we all need to choose a celebrity and start praying. Yep, celebrities and politicians. Yeah. Look, I mean, the impact that they have on our culture. Exactly. And uh, they come to come to Jesus and right. influence others. So that is my that's my new prayer goal. Is I'm I've picked a celebrity and I'm going to start praying for them. Do you want to name that celebrity? I don't know. Publicly, should I? <laughs> um, I asked Mary who I should pray for, mm. and a song popped in my head, so it is a song artist. Okay. Yeah. Good. Fantastic. <laughs> well, and I think Cam had mentioned that uh, a priest friend in Nashville has been praying for another uh, Catholic, or another singer, mm. who's, uh, I believe, was raised in the faith, but has since gone pretty far away from it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, let's... Uh, Let's do that. Let's each pick somebody in the public sphere yeah. and pray for them. It's better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I, had a, I had a neat uh, uh, thing happen last night. I used this app called Be My Eyes. What's that? It's, uh, so if you're visually impaired, you use this app to initiate a video call with somebody to help you out with uh, a task or oh. reading something. So I got a call last night. It was a, a lady in Washington state who had two frozen dinners and she wanted to find out which one was which. Mm -hmm. And then also the cooking directions for it. So and, she just used her camera. Yeah. To... The camera on her phone okay. and we're, and we're chatting and, you know, she's lining it up with the with the labels and everything, and 
it's just a very practical, yeah, you know, great use of technology where two people can come together and, and, and help each other. Mm-hmm. There's like 7 million volunteers to help mm-hmm. those that are visually impaired. And there's, I think, about a half a million or so uh, visually impaired people. But I got a call a year or so ago, and you only have about 10 seconds to answer, and then it rolls over to the next person. Okay, so they're not Automatically, right. And I'm not always available when, you know, the call comes in. I get maybe one one or two a month. But I had one from a gentleman in New York who needed help uh, matching his clothes, (laughs) which, I mean... I don't have that problem typically. <laughs> my my color palette is pretty limited. You know, just it's like gray animals. You know, that's I I kind of stopped at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Perry asked if yeah if I put my wife that would have been good, but uh, it was really nice because he uh, it was Memorial Day or Fourth of July and he was invited to a party mm-hmm. and he he had mentioned that he doesn't go out a lot. Yeah. So this was really special mm-hmm. to him that he was able to to go out and, and enjoy the holiday. And That's so beautiful. And you got to partake of that with him and be in his joy and help him. Goodness. Yeah, it, it, it was awesome. And I'm not sure how confident he was in my advice. <laughs> <laughs> he probably hung up with me and called somebody else. Yeah, but... <laughs> but, uh, but no, but that's that is a truly beautiful use of technology like you said yeah and it's so communal yeah i love that another guy had me uh uh help uh connect his uh uh dvd player <laughs> which uh which i he it, it it was it was just spending time uh yeah. you know with him and he wanted to watch a uh and, and then the conversation starts he wanted to watch he just gotten some uh doctor who videos or nice. dvds and mm-hmm. he so we had that in common, and we were able to chat about that. And <laughs> actually, I was confident that we connected it well because mm-hmm. he put it in and it played. So oh, good. <laughs> better, better than you know, matching khakis and uh, like a peach-colored shirt or something. So. <laughs> so yeah, God bless. Be my eyes, folks. If you're looking for a very easy and um, tangible way to help others, mm-hmm. it's a it's a great app. So, gentlemen, Dr. Daniel Bowen, Dr. Perry, welcome to the St. Gabriel Cafe. Thanks Re- very much. Return Thank you. visits. Yeah. We're, yeah. We're going to open up. Oh, before that, big event on Sunday. Big event. Listen big up. event. Listen up, folks. <laughs> members of Sacred Heart Parish, past members, and alumni are all welcome to come and celebrate the 100th year of Sacred Heart. So Bishop Earl Fernandez will preside on this on this, this mass with Monsignor Frank Lane on Sunday, this Sunday, Sunday, November 19th at 11.30 a.m. So congratulations mm-hmm. to the Sacred Heart community. Absolutely. Now we're going to talk about Veritatis Splendor with our friends, Father Daniel Bowen, Dr. Perry Cajal. Should Cajal. we start with defining the title? Yeah, let's start there. Veritatis Splendor, the splendor of the truth. There you go. Boom. Now, this was released 30 years ago, so that would make it 1993. This was the 10th of St. John Paul II's 14 encyclicals. 
So Perry, can you help us put it into some historical context? Uh, why do you think JP2, yes. uh, why do you think he wrote it and released it when he did? Well, he wrote it to address a kind of a crisis in moral theology uh, in the church that mm-hmm. had ensued since uh, the Second Vatican Council. Uh, there was uh, a lot of problems in the way that moral theology was being taught, he says, in both colleges, Catholic colleges and seminaries, and I think just a widespread uh, dissent from Catholic moral teaching. And I th- Define moral theology. So uh, moral theology would be the subcategory of theology that tells us how we should live and act in our response to God's love. It's about a living relationship with our Lord. And in fact, nice. in fact, I would say, you know, uh, you don't want to categorize any aspect of theology from the, from the whole, separate it out. Moral theology is part of our response of faith. Because we all know that the way that we love somebody is shown by how we act. Mm. You can say you love your wife as much as you want, mm-hmm. for as long as you want every day, but if you don't ultimately live it out, mm-hmm. then what do the words mean? So it's part of our lived response of faith to our Lord. And that's one of the things John Paul II makes clear in the contours of the encyclical. But to set the stage, I think the best place to turn is at the very beginning of the encyclical itself when he, he states the purpose for his writing this, kind of the historical context that he sees. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to lift a couple of sentences to, from this. Please do. John Paul says, Today it seems necessary to reflect on the whole of the church's moral teaching with the precise goal of recalling certain fundamental truths of the Catholic doctrine which in the present circumstances risk being distorted or denied. He says it's no longer a matter of a limited and occasional dissent, but an overall and systematic calling into question of traditional moral doctrine. And he says at the root of this questioning is a detachment of human freedom from its essential and constitutive relationship to truth. So detaching freedom from truth has led to this widespread dissent. He says the lack of harmony between the traditional response of the church and certain theological presuppositions encountered even in seminaries and in theology faculties with regard to the questions of the greatest of greatest importance for the church need to be addressed. Mm. And, it, it kind of reminds me of a letter that Paul would write to one of the churches. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, to Corinth. Hey, uh, what's yeah. going on there? Get your act together. Mm. Uh, but this is, I mean, it's not, this is, does not have the tone in any way of being, I think, heavy-handed. Right. He does very, very severely crit- critique some moral theories that are being proposed by, without naming names, by certain theologians of the day that have gained currency. But he ends this whole, the beginning of the encyclical, the introduction, by saying the sp- specific purpose of this encyclical is to set forth the principles of a moral, moral teaching based on scripture and tradition, and at the same time to shed light on the presuppositions and consequences of dissent which that teaching has met. So he's really aiming for an overall renewal of an approach to moral theology in the life of the church. And I don't think, just if you just listen to those parts I read, it's, this is as, as important today as it was in 1993. Right. I think he did succeed, by and large, in helping to rejuvenate, you know, reinvigorate Catholic moral theology as, as it's taught in seminaries and some universities. Before we dive into the specifics, some of the specifics of the document— when did you first read it? When I was in graduate school. Mm-hmm. So I was in grad school in, in the mid-90s, so we were, I was reading this in one of my uh, fundamental morals classes, uh, hot off the press. And I, I do remember, I, I, the copy I pulled off my shelf today, I was telling you earlier, is the copy that I used in that class, and I have my margin notes in it. Um, this was, it was an eye-opening encyclical for me. Mm-hmm. 
I, I did not realize until that moment how much I had been infected by the <clears throat> misunderstanding <clears throat> of freedom in our culture. Mm. And there are certain passages in that in the encyclical. I just put it down and I started praying because I realized I'd been living in accord with that counterfeit vision of freedom. Wow. Yeah. What was that view that you had? I think my the vision of freedom, which I operated by without knowing it, and that which still I think a lot of our culture operates yeah. according to, is freedom is the ability to do whatever I want. Right? It's it, unencumbered by anybody else telling me what to do. And as a Catholic... I, un, unknowingly, it had led to this, my understanding of the moral life is me just kind of bending my freedom to do what God wants me to do. Like it's, it was a constant battle between, well, God wants me to do this, but I want to do that. Well, I'll just submit. Mm. Right. And that's not a really happy or joyful way to live out one's response to the Lord, to live out the moral life. And what John Paul II says about true authentic freedom was just, it was liberating. Literally. I mean, freedom is liberating. It was liberating for me. Mm. Father Daniel, when you first read the document, you weren't even Catholic. No, no. Uh, at first, I what, no, that's not true. I, I hadn't when this was released. I wasn't. I wasn't a Catholic. Mm-hmm. So I had no. Oh, when it was released, you weren't yeah. Catholic, but you read it as a Catholic. Yes. Okay. At, at seminary. Okay. And, you know. Okay. Many years later. <laughs> yeah. Is that when you first heard about it? Then. Yeah. Or, uh, okay. Yeah. I had really never reckoned or conceived of it or realized. Uh, you know, this, this, until we, you know, I was training to become a priest and get into all that, you know, and by the, the by the way, this is the, uh, the first and only papal, papal encyclical that's focused on moral theology. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that in itself should make, lead us to go, Hmm, <laughs> maybe we need to tune into this one. This is important. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, how was it received in 1993 by the church and theologians? <laughs> I think you could say that it, uh, was received certainly with enthusiasm by those who saw the things John Paul was saying. I think within the academy, let's use that, the academy writ large, it was probably received like a bucket of holy water in hell. Mm. Um, mm. I mean, it was, you had moral theologians, you can correct me if you think I'm wrong. No, but, no. But, I mean, I, living in that time and seeing how different people react, and in one particular, I remember a theologian in the program I was in who reacted this way, just acted completely offended. You know, that the Pope would be telling moral theologians what to do. And um, so it's certainly at had, the level of like uh, Humana Vitae, uh, that, that, that type of response, similar to that response. Okay. Yes. Because he does address a couple particular moral theories head on, which had become very current and very popular. Um, we don't need to go into these, but a couple would be proportionalism and fundamental option theory, which were spread by, wide and, and far and among even in Catholic circles, even in the academy. And when he starts hammering those, you can imagine there was screaming and gnashing of teeth. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine if you're a screaming moral... Screaming and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine if you're a moral theologian and that's something that you've been devoting your time to is diving into this particular theory that, yeah, once you kind of get... Um, told that you're incorrect. It, yeah. it would be hard yeah. to take. <laughs> Time for a course correction. Mm-hmm. Now, so. 30 years later, is it still referred to? Oh, yeah. This The documents used in the fundamental morals class that's taught at the Josephinum, I, and most seminaries would use it in a fundamental mm-hmm. morals class. And, you know, good Catholic colleges, when they have courses on moral theology, would also use it. Okay. It's, it's, it's gained, that's what I said in my comments a little bit ago, it's gained currency in 
you know, among moral theologians, a lot of the dissenters have, are fading away and it's had that impact. But some of the problems he identifies in terms of freedom, truth, disconnection of those principles from joy and happiness and the moral life, those are still needed. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a document, you know, I'd encourage anyone who's listening, you know, these things are now beautifully available to us for free online. You can find this, you know, at the Vatican.va website. You can find it at the EWTN library. Um, Veritati, Splendor, or the Splendor of Truth, John Paul, just that information enough in your search engine on your internet uh, will pull this up for you. Yeah. And, uh, it's and, a- and I would encourage going to the source document. Yeah. Because yeah. to your point, Perry, summaries and critiques oh, right, sure. are, are across the board. Just yeah. when, when I was doing my research, you have yeah. those that <laughs> like it and those yeah. that are still arguing with it. And so go to the source. And then if you do want commentary, go to a trusted source too. I agree completely. And that goes for any church document. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's very beautifully laid out, you know, and he makes the case walking you through scripture, bringing you to Christ through the old Testament. I mean, it's, it's, it's not just, he's just coming out with like, you know, two pages of just, this is wrong. Don't do it. It's not that it's just, it's absolutely as you, as you walk through this document and again, do it prayerfully, take your time with it, bring it to prayer as you did back when you read it initially. Um, it's transformative to help you kind of see, um, uh, see in a new way, perhaps, or, or reinforce something that, that maybe was kind of just under the surface you hadn't realized. Um, but that's the gift and the beautiful um, teaching of John Paul. Yeah, I think, to Father, to your point, it's the encyclical is not, it makes it clear that, ca- that Catholic moral teaching is not about, about a bunch of rules. That's right. Or obligations. That's right, right? yes. That he, he's, he's very aware. John Paul II always had his thumb on the pulse, I think, of the culture worldwide and he's very clear that many people perceive that that's the case that catholic moral teachings is about just do this don't do this but he takes it back to our lord in what he says about the moral life in scripture he begins with the this conversation that the lord has with the rich young man who comes to him asking what can i do to attain eternal life and then he just expands on that conversation to say the moral life is about happiness yeah in the deepest most profound sense this is not about bending my will to do, to, you know, is conflict of wills between myself and God. Mm. It's about living a life that leads to joy. And the Lord doesn't give us these commandments, whether they be the Ten Commandments or the, the teachings that, that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. Right. He doesn't give these to us to make our lives difficult. He gives these to us because he wants us to be joyful and our joy to be complete. And that, that I think, is something that most many Catholics, I would say, still... They need that connection made, you know, that, that this, that we aren't just doing things because out of a rote sense of, mm. you know, well, the church tells me to do this, so I have to do it. No, it's the vo- the loving voice of Christ that's leading us on to fulfillment. And that's what the moral life is about. I like the word you used earlier, uh, Perry, on liberating. Mm-hmm. Uh, it brings to mind also uh, Father John Ricardo's, the way he presents the, the charisma uh, that element of being rescued, you know, and, and, uh, and liberated to, to really discover what freedom, what freedom is. Yes. And one, and one of the things that John Paul II and father, you don't let me dominate this oh, conversation. No, you're, no, you're fine. But it, you know, that one of the fundamental truths that he brings out is that true freedom is linked to truth. 
Hmm. You know, that you cannot be free without the truth that comes from God, you know, about our nature, about the world, about our relationship with him. And we can know truth. Truth is knowable. You know, that we live in still this kind of agnostic culture, if you will, agnostic about the truth. Well, it's just my truth and your truth and Relativism. You know, yeah, radical yeah. relativism, which John, yeah. which Benedict XVI diagnosed after John Paul II. We live in a culture culture of radical relativism. Mm. And but John Paul II is pointing out, no, you can know truth, and and our Lord tells us as much in it's John's Gospel, what is it, chapter fourteen, where where Jesus says the truth will set you free, mm-hmm. and yes. I am the truth, right? So we we can't fi- be truly free without the truth. By knowing Jesus, ultimately by knowing it. Jesus, yeah. yes, yeah. that He's the fullness of the truth. Right. But even if one isn't Catholic or not Christian, if if one is not concerned about knowing the truth, forming one's life around the truth that you that you can know, you're not going to be free. You're not going to be happy. And I suppose that gets back to what I said earlier: like freedom is not the ability to do whatever I want. It's the free freedom is the ability to grow in perfection, moral perfection, human perfection. To abide in the very bosom of the Trinity, that's freedom. Perry, was that just in your own journey of kind of this realization of this actual liberty? Was that something, once you heard it, it was just kind of a switch or something you had to still grapple with, like a journey? No, I think I had to grapple with. I think there was a, a falling, a scales falling from the eyes moment mm. when reading the encyclical and being in class. But the moral life is not like a, an on-off switch. I mean, it takes, it involves... You know, overcoming vice or bad habits and relying upon the grace of the Holy Spirit to build virtue or good habits. And that takes time. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it takes patience with yourself and relying upon the Lord to help you in that journey. But the knowledge helps you get over a barrier. Right. You know? This idea of, okay, it's not me just bending my will to what God right. is asking, but actually he's asked this of me only because he knows how he made my heart Yes, and what's going to lead me to what's true good and what will ultimately make me happy. Yes. And, and that was the, that got, that got me over the rub, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It was realizing that this God who gives me these commandments, gives us these commandments, wants my happiness more than I could ever possibly want it for myself. Mm-hmm. That changed the whole, my mm-hmm. whole vision of the moral life. What I think might make me happy, this apparent happiness, is not guaranteed to lead me anywhere good or free. Only the only the Lord knows what will make me free. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that's, that's yeah. A, that's I a mean that's earth, earth shattering though. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was it was and, and so fundamental. It was a seismic shift in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it changed the whole my whole outlook on struggling with sin mm-hmm. and. And how to be really, truly free. Because we live in a culture which still gives this, it sells this counterfeit vision of That's, freedom. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. do whatever you want. Do whatever makes you happy, quote, in quotes. So John Paul writes in very touchy splendor following on this line. He says, and this is a quote from the document. It is urgent to rediscover and to set forth once more the authentic reality of the Christian faith, which is not simply a set of propositions to be accepted with intellectual assent rather faith is a lived knowledge of christ a living remembrance of his commandments and a truth to be lived out a word in any event is not truly received until it passes into action until it is put into practice 
Faith is a decision involving one's whole existence. It is an encounter, a dialogue, a communion of love and of life between the believer and Jesus Christ, the way and the truth and the life. It entails an act of trusting abandonment to Christ, which enables us to live as he lived in profound love of God and of our brothers and sisters. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Father, what about that really stood out to you? Oh, just uh, yet. This is one you could just spend just chewing on for a while, right? An encounter, a dial, a communion of love, Mm -hmm. right? It's an invitation to a deep, profound relationship, which is, which is everything that, right? And abandoning yourself to Christ, putting him, putting your, you know what I mean? It's kind of the whole paradigm shift, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Of again, that movement that's so necessary in our life from being selfish to being selfless, Mm -hmm. from turning from child to adult, uh, yeah, and again, the, the root of its love, right? Right. And, yeah, and like Perry was saying, that that realization yeah. that you know that this is a God who loves me and wants my good, yes. and therefore <laughs> I should want to follow what is true, and that's what makes us free. Yeah, he's he, our Lord is not an overlord or a taskmaster. He's not asking us to like do all these difficult things to prove yourself to me. It has nothing to do with that at all. Right. It's you know what I. It's more like the vision, and this is putting John Paul II's in words in my kind of simpler words, but it's what the Lord gives us when He gives us His commands are not onerous tasks, but they are a roadmap to happiness. And certainly, we have the free will to accept them or reject them. Yeah. And He's not going to force us to do anything. No. But if I want true freedom and lasting fulfillment and happiness, I need to grab on to him and and heed his teachings and trust that he will never ask anything of me that he won't empower me to do. And if I hand myself over, like the passage you read, Father, and trust yourself to the Lord, if I entrust myself to the Lord, then I'm on the right path. I'm, I, I am heading towards what my heart most deeply longs for. Mm-hmm. Not these kind of ephemeral, fleeting pleasures or the worldly happiness, but I am on the path to, re- to, fulf- to realizing the deepest desires of my heart. Mm. And if you would, like, and I just, I'll throw this out there for everybody else to comment on. The first chapter, John Paul II begins this with Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 16. Yeah. And this is the encounter between our Lord and the rich young man. Right, the rich young man who comes to the Lord and says, "Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" Right, and Jesus then, interestingly, you know, he he tells him, "If you want to inherit eternal life, keep the commandments." And then he lists the 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 commandments, interestingly enough, that are on the second second tablet from Moses. So there's the, there were three commandments on the first tablet, which dealt with our relationship directly with God. Right, and then he's what the Lord starts reciting are the, the things on the second tablet, how we relate to each other, honor your father and mother, you know, don't kill. And the rich young man responds, well, I've observed these all my life, right? What more can I do? Mm. And then the Lord calls him to a different level. And here, here's what I want to point to. Now, this is a particular call to this particular man, but he says, there is one more thing. Go, sell what you have, and come and follow me. So the Lord must have looked into this young man's heart and, and saw that he was attached to his things. 
and the Lord was calling him to detach himself from the world and to, to make Jesus the number one priority. Now, we're told at the end of that passage, the young man went away sad. Right. Now, yeah. my hope is that before, bef- you know, that at some point later he came back. We don't know. But at the moment, it was a challenge that he found incredibly difficult to respond to. But here's kind of the general point I want to make. The Lord makes it clear that the simply not violating the commandments is not enough to achieve fulfillment, happiness, eternal life. Mm-hmm. The commandments are the beginning, not violating the commandments. And he wants us to grow in human perfection. He's not a taskmaster. He's not telling us, well, you got to be perfect in this life. You got to do everything right. He wants it to, us to experience a fulfillment beyond that, that the rich young man was thinking about. He's not a taskmaster, but he gives us the roadmap. Yes, and he always wants us to experience more and more and more with him. Right? So the, in that, here's my vision of this, that the Lord presents this vision in which the, the commandments are kind of like the rudiments of the moral life. They're almost like, uh, think of the vision of, a, of like a virtuoso piano player. So the, the piano player who's thrilling people in the concert hall he can't do this without knowing the scales. You right. can't play a single song without knowing the scales and the rudiments of your craft. But that virtuoso piano player, once he's mastered the rudiments, makes that instrument sing. He soars to the heights. Right? Similarly in the moral life, it's like the Lord is presenting to this rich young man, these are the scales. Glad you've got them down. Right? But I want you to make your life sing. Right. And I want you to, to I want you to sing with me. Right. So um that's the kind of the vision. I'm a very imaginative thinker, and that's the kind of a, the, the vision that I get when I when I'm read read that passage and then see what John Paul II says about it. Because he's the Lord is always calling us to more. Not because he wants to make our lives hard, but because he wants us to be so darn happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Don't, no, 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 that's, that's great. great. Dr. Perry, Father Daniel. Yeah. So we're, we're talking about Veritati Splendor, and we're kind of going through this part of Matthew 19, 16. And really, the connection there with the rich young man is, yes, freedom is connected to the law. The truth. But, and the truth. Um, and Perry, what you're pulling out also is this idea of, yeah, but but that's just our starting point is to follow the commandments. Right, right? Yeah. But what's ultimately going to make us happy is kind of this, the detachments. Yes. And, and where does the Lord make that connection even more? It's the Sermon on the Mount, chapter five, where he starts, he gives us the Beatitudes. Yeah, Beatitudes. blessed are. The blessed yeah. life, the happy life. Mm-hmm. So here's what the happy life looks like. So the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. That's the making your life sing. More than just mastering the scales or not violating the scales, right? That's the making your life sing part. Here's what the happy life looks like. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 yeah. And, and holiness. Yes. Is that striving for holiness is striving for happiness, you know? Uh, and, and again, our Lord will meet us where we're at always because he loves us. That's what love does. But he loves us enough to not leave us there. He wants us to to grow, to mature, uh, uh, you know, and again, a lot of times our perceptions are still uh, at an infantile stage when we're young, right? You know, we can, children only have a limited way of understanding and the way you teach them, you know, do a task, do this, you know, and that works for that, but hopefully they kind of grow out of that, you know, 
And in the same way, this is what our Lord really wants is to kind of, how do we perceive God? You know, is this, is this, this grand lover, you know, in whose image we've been created. So we're not, again, we're not the creator, but you know, we're made in his image and, and the, and there's a summoning from, uh, from him to us, to that deeper place, to that deeper reality here and now, but then even beyond. Right. So, uh, so awesome. God is so good. (laughs) And, And I think John Paul II understood very clearly that many people, many Catholics, don't didn't understand that. That's right. I don't understand. Yes. That. Like you're you're missing out on the on the big picture. You're focusing on the the trees instead of the forest. It's that you know these are not just rules. Mm-hmm. You know the, these these commands come uh, come to us within the context of of a of our incarnate Lord who says, "I've come so that your that that your joy may be complete, right? that you may have abundant life." And all of this and everything in Veritatis Splendor is about the abundant life. Mm-hmm. It's, and that, that's what was so eye-opening for me, to realize that living the moral life is all about happiness in the truest sense, not in the you know, worldly sense. Right. It would probably be good to mention that if you're living the moral life well and you find yourself unhappy at some times, it's, it's not because you're necessarily doing something wrong, no. right? Yeah. But that our Lord maybe in some ways wants to purify us to bring us to a greater happiness, yes. a greater freedom. Yeah, it's kind of. I think it's kind of like exercising, in a certain <laughs> way. It's like when you know you're doing something that's good for you. Does it always feel good? No. <laughs> Sometimes after you exercise vigorously, you you kind of like, man, I wish I hadn't done that. <laughs> but because you're hurting, like you're sore. But after the fact, as time goes by, you realize that you did something good for you, and that's. Journey in the moral life. Does does doing the right thing, doing following the Lord always feel good? Well, no, not in the fallen world. We have when we have our own brokenness, our own fallen inclinations, our own attachments to sin. That's what dying to ourselves and following the Lord means, dying to our own egos. But but if we rely upon the Lord to help us to do that, we know that we're more joyful than we were before. Mm-hmm. We know it. Pope John Paul II spends a fair amount of time in in the second chapter talking about conscience and truth. And Perry, you had mentioned before relativism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, try help me make the connection then between relativism and how we Mm -hmm. claim a formed conscience. Yeah. So I think that's certainly still an. a real pandemic in our culture today, uh, this whole misunderstanding of conscience. So he makes it very clear that the, the modern world thinks that conscience has the ability to create truth. So that's where you get lines today like, well, that's your truth, this is my truth, mm-hmm. moral relativism. But he's, he's teaching in this encyclical that conscience does not create truth. It perceives truth and makes judgments based upon it. So conscience is my ability with reason and will right, to perceive the truth and to make judgments based upon that truth that I know, to judge my own actions, in fact. Right? And, but it has to be done in the context of truth. Correct. Right? Conscience has no validity without truth. Mm-hmm. So I can't just create my own moral universe. And when, when I thought but this— But boy, isn't that what we're 
Yeah. That's rampant. I mean, Rampage, oh, yeah. talk about yes. pandemic. I mean, this is. Yeah, this idea that conscience can make truth. That's no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, folks, but it I can't. Think, many people will say the opposite, right? right? So. But, Perry, what you're pulling out is this idea that, um, not idea, the truth of that, um, we're, we're just actually supposed to judge, not determine. Is that correct? Correct. So. He talks about conscience, it, does, it serves two functions, right? So conscience perceives moral principles, right? Perceives truth, and then it makes judgments with regard to those principles that are perceived, right? So, um, but you can only make those judgments if your conscience is first informed mm-hmm. by the truth. Conscience doesn't create it, right? I don't, I, th- this is, I cannot create my own moral universe, which is, that's the, in the extreme, I think that's the kind of claim for conscience today. You can decide your own moral universe, I can decide mine. What I like to remind my students of is, okay, to see the falsity of that, you only need to read the first few pages of Scripture, right? Where Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve do exactly that. They're tempted by the father of lies to try to create their own moral universe. Somehow he gets them to distrust that God has their best interests in heart, and they pick from this tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is a passage that's just laden with incredible symbolism. But it, the fundamental symbolism is when they pick from that tree, they have decided, they have tried to decide for themselves what's good and evil without reference to God, to create their own moral universe. And we see where that leads, to nothing but heartache and division and divisiveness and unhappiness. Mm-hmm. And... That's what happens in our own lives when we try to decide our own, to create our own moral universe. It doesn't lead to anywhere true. I I tell people, look, there are plenty of times in my life when I have, according to this misunderstood concept of freedom, done exactly what I wanted, when I wanted, and how I wanted. And it led me not to anywhere that was peaceful, free, happy. It led me feeling desolate and alone. Why? Because I chose in a way which is apart from God's truth. And that's what you get. God will give us what we want. And if what I want is to follow my way instead of his way, well, I get my way. I won't be happy. Yeah. You know, but that's, conscience has to be informed by truth. Conscience can be malformed. It can, can be misinformed. You know, it can be uninformed. But you can't make good moral judgments without being informed by the truth. So another passage I feel like I need to mention right now, and again, I'm sorry, Father. Oh, no, no, it's, you're good. Is where... Um, <laughs> You know, we hear this all the time in our culture. Well, uh, you shouldn't judge. You know, and they're, they're kind of mis- misappropriating our Lord's judge not, unless you shall be judged. Well, the Lord doesn't mean you can't judge the moral quality of a human action. That would be preposterous. You know, I'm, I have to judge what's right and wrong. How else am I going to lead my life? Right. What he means is I can't judge the state of another person's soul. Like I, I, I'm obliged to, dis, to be able to judge whether the, what they're doing is right and wrong, right? But I can't judge their moral culpability. I don't know why they did this. You know, it's objectively wrong. You know, take murder. It's objectively wrong, right? It's, it's always and everywhere a, a, a sin to take an innocent human life. But I don't know exactly what's going on in their heart, what's going on in their soul, I don't know whether they've, you know, they've tried to seek forgiveness for this in some way. I don't know that. I can't judge the state of a person's soul. What I can judge and what I'm obliged to judge is the moral quality of their actions because I have to judge my own. Mm-hmm. Right. 
So, and if I don't make those judgments, then I can't journey to, to freedom and truth and happiness. And the only way I can make those judgments is if I'm informed with the truth. That's, all, that's the only thing that gives conscience its validity. Yeah. We, we've set a pretty low standard or, um, for joy and happiness right yes, in, yes. in our world today <laughs> I mean, when 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 we're when people are are stuck in um, a particular sin or uh, a lifestyle and they don't we don't even realize that we're not happy right we settle we settle yeah. how, how can we evangelize in these situations <laughs> then to to make these points to to preach it you know that that <laughs> yeah. that you know it seems that, there's there's more here folks but you just go back to the garden right of adam and eve right they they a fruit of a tree like let's see how that's more attractive to me than like eternal happiness with god right like you know this is a great tree i'm it, just right? gonna sit right so here I'm gonna, yeah. Which isn't even to mention the entire garden around right. them. Yeah. Like, be, you let alone God. This got whole garden. Just this one's no. <laughs> right? It, it, and so it's still the same today. And in the document, John Paul talks about intrinsic evils, right? And these, get, again, moral absolutes were being questioned. They're questioned today. Sometimes abortion can be okay, right? Mm -hmm. That's what our culture says. That's what our people in the state of Ohio voted for last week. But is mm -hmm. that true? And who has the right to say, you know, right? God, who made us? But it's again, it's a denial of God and his, uh, um, our, our relation to him, right? Well, see, then this begs, begs the question of, okay, not everyone has a faith. So how can mm -hmm. we be rooted in the truth in a society where maybe not everyone's following yeah, a particular faith? Pluralistic. I, I think um, I heard the latest Kara study says one in four people do not believe in God today in the United States. So, right, we have yeah. to realize the people that we're encountering in our day-to-day -day life who are called to, right, to evangelize, but also just, you know, to build bridges to begin with, right, to, um, for the furthering of a good, healthy culture. Um, how do we approach that, right? Hopefully joyfully, peacefully, right? Mm -hmm. we, we don't try to wreck them. <laughs> um, but it's a challenge. It is, no doubt about it. We're kind of back in mission territory you've heard that said but it, it is true mm -hmm. well it, it i think that the only maybe maybe not the only i won't go that far one way that we know that works is that personal stories uh, of conversion and how you know and this is used through you know paul's letters uh, on on preaching the gospel and sharing the kerygma is I'm broken. You know, I myself have lived in sin. Yeah. And I thought I was happy, but then I found the truth and a joy and a happiness I never thought possible. And then you share the source yeah. of that, of that peace, of that hope, that splendor of truth. That's it. And also we've got to walk the walk and talk the talk. If we believe this, we really have to follow through on it. And John Paul gets a little bit into martyrdom. You know, like we say, oh, we have to stay away from that. It's the worst thing could ever happen that I would die for what I believe in. But that's... Isn't that's, that... that's like one of the best things in my opinion. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. So, 
No, I, I want I want to say something. Amanda's initial question uh, was you know, about truth, right? And if people don't have faith, how do they know truth? And clearly, all of us sitting around this table, you know, would hold that well, Jesus is the truth. Mm-hmm. He's the fullness of truth, yeah. and that's where you're going to find true happiness. But people can know truth without having faith, mm. you know. And and uh, this is why personally, I get kind of irritated when issues like abortion or contraception or the or whatever else same-sex unions what take pick your topic in the moral world that uh, issues that are hot button issues where people of faith tend to respond by saying well this is what i believe Mm -hmm. right no it's what i think right and the church you know and and the the light of revelation that christ brings shows forth the 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 fullness of this truth but we can reason to those things right with with unaided by faith. So in other words, there's not one teaching that the church proposes in the moral life that is not possible to reason to. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the church doesn't have its present its moral teachings because, well, these are for Catholics. No, no yeah. it presents these moral teachings because you're human. Because and, it's yeah. rooted in the truth. Yes. And because, and <laughs> oh, because huge. every human yeah. being can reason to these principles right. to know that this is what leads the human person to flourish. Certain behaviors do that and certain pers- certain behaviors tear us down. Now the problem is, as I think you guys were talking about, is we live in a culture that doesn't want to think anymore. Mm. Yeah, you know, the, the whole culture is existing on the level of emotion. I, I don't think I don't think that's an overstatement. I mean, if the, if modern the modern world was does, was kind of typified by an over reliance upon reason and jettison faith, the postmodern world does jettisons both faith and reason. It just wants to emote everywhere. You know, that's what that's what feels good to you. This is what feels good to me. Mm-hmm. And I think you were circling around it, like Father, what you said about we have to live it. It's what's going to convert this this type of culture. Well, I think it's the beauty of the Christian life, the beauty of a, a truly joyful life, which doesn't mean happy, clappy, hey, you know, yeah. singing songs yeah. all the time, Christian, you know, false joy. But it's it's a Christian joy that's about living this life in the Lord, and that that you can experience that joy even amidst suffering. You know that 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 suffering is not the worst evil in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, sin is, which mm-hmm. is why the martyrs are presented as examples in John Paul II's encyclical. Why? Because they give their lives for the truth, and in that they are truly free, right? Even amidst that suffering, they're finding ultimate joy. And we have to convince people by the lives that we live that, that that's real, that there's a joy that they don't even know about yet. Yes, you can know this truth without faith, but let me tell you what, what Jesus brings to this. Mm-hmm. Right? This is not just abiding by a list of principles that you've reasoned to. This is about life with an encounter with the living God. And that alone is going to be complete joy. And I, I jotted something else down while you, while you guys were talking. You know, Jesus is not our enemy. He is not our competitor. Mm-hmm. He is not an overlord. Um, I've noticed this disturbing trend. I'm using Microsoft Edge as my browser lately on my computer because Google's been giving me trouble. But Microsoft Edge comes, when you open it, it has all these different news banners and stories. Yeah. The number of anti-Christian pieces in the, I don't know what you call them, little boxes, little bubbles, is really astounding to me. Mm. You know, And they're getting people to doubt not only the truth of Christianity, but that Jesus is actually good for them. 
all these they're trying to to it's an anti-christian movement to try yeah. to try to to convince people that jesus is our enemy that is di- diabolical that is from yeah. from the devil without a doubt you know and that's a, exactly what he did to our first parents back to genesis somehow the lord is your enemy he doesn't want what's really good for you no and we we just have to stare that evil down and say jesus is your greatest ally nobody wants your happiness more than he does read the gospels read them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even that passage of the rich young man which john paul ii starts with and it's interesting to me he signed this document on the feast of the transfiguration yeah where the lord's you know the glory of the lord shines forth on that tabor vision with J- peter james and john why <laughs> the very day he signs it it's like this is what the human person is made for yeah. this yeah. type of glory right. i can't wait yeah <laughs> 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 Yeah, mm, and we need to show forth that that desire, right, in our daily lives, and that what we're hoping for is real and true and attainable. Yes, and I think some of the I, I speak for myself, but I think this is true for most people. I think one of the most difficult dynamics in this encounter and re- lived relationship with the Lord and the moral life is overcoming the thought that I am not worth this. Like I don't deserve this type of joy, right? That that, that some in some ways the first and hardest step is to just receive. Just to receive, mm-hmm. you know that, that the Lord yeah. really does want this for me, even with all my brokenness and all my faults, all my failures, all my sinfulness. He wants me. He loves me that much. I don't know. No, that's such a yeah. good point. The, the overcoming this idea of. I'm unworthy or this isn't for me. That's absolutely not true. I mean, Jesus himself says, I came for for the sinners, for the prostitutes, for for those who actually need a physician and are are ready to receive. And if we like we have to let those walls down and allow him into our hearts so we could receive him. Yep. And can't we can't hold on to those past sins or those that past feeling of guilt like the rich young man. That yeah. he encountered. The, why does he go away sad? Because there's something he can't detach his heart from. You know, and that's the the first step to joy is to receive that. Anyway, that's fantastic, Doctor Perry Cahal, Father Daniel Bowen. We're unwrapping Veritatis Splendor on its thirtieth anniversary. This is when you have to spend some time. With folks, uh, Father Daniel, you you had mentioned that it, it's a great encyclical to bring into a holy hour yeah, to absolutely really quiet things down and spend some time with. It, it's not a page turner, so to speak. Uh, wasn't it for me read. anyway. Yeah. Um, but you read a paragraph and then you, then you sit with it. And I I, I would suggest finding um, a, a good commentary uh, to go with it. Um, I would also suggest take your Bible because he uses mm-hmm. so many. Yeah. Uh, a lot of- and, and the catechism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Cardinal, uh, well, uh, Pope Benedict XVI uh, described Veritatis Splendor as a milestone in the mm-hmm. el- elaboration of the moral message of Christianity, uh, while noting that it had more positive receptions among thinkers outside the church. How about that? Uh, than some of the exponents of catholic theology because uh, the heart has to be open to truth right 
Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the Lord isn't going to force anybody to follow him. He only invites and, and only and always invites. And we, in, we have the free will to accept or reject. Mm-hmm. But we only arrive at freedom if what we choose to do with our free wills is in line with truth and goodness. If those free choices aren't in the line with, with truth and goodness, we're never going to achieve freedom. And so in some ways, you know, freedom isn't, back to that concept, freedom isn't a static thing. It's not just my ability to choose. That's not what freedom is. Freedom is, it's a goal. It's a state of being. And we can't arrive at freedom without exercising our free will properly and that's al- as it's aligned with goodness and truth. That's the, if, if, any, if there's a main message for everybody out of Veritatis Splendor, I think it's that. This al- what true freedom is. Three minutes uh, remaining. Let's bring our Blessed Mother into it. Yeah, well, Perry, as you were speaking, it made me think of, you know, kind of originally your testimony of reading Veritatis Splendor and then kind of grappling with it, whereas coming from this place of thinking that I have to kind of bend myself to God's will and his commandments, well, you know, we all go through kind of times like that, I think, and I mean, who better to help us than Mary? Right. When we're grappling with something, she always wants to draw us closer to her son. And that and that's pretty much, I think, uh, uh, the Pope's uh, John Paul II's closing statements. is Yeah, he brings it to Mary. Yeah, bring it to Mary. She'll bring you to Jesus, who is the way, the truth and the life. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) He said, you know, is again paraphrasing. Mary is also mother of mercy because at the foot of the cross, Jesus entrusted to her in the person of John his church and all humanity. Mary became mother of each of us, the mother who obtains divine mercy for all. Mary is that radiant sign and inviting model of the moral life, says the Holy Father. Mm-hmm. Mary lived and exercised her freedom precisely by giving herself to God and accepting God's gift within herself. By the gift of herself, Mary entered fully into the plan of God. So by accepting and pondering in her heart events that she did not always understand. She became the model of all those who hear the word of God and keep it. Mary addresses us, you and I as well, with the command that she gave to the servants at the wedding feast of Cana in Galilee, where she said, do whatever he, Jesus, tells you. Yeah. Amen. Father, er, Father Daniel... Dr. Perry, thanks for being with us here in the cafe. We're going to be back Monday morning to start our week of Thanksgiving Woo-hoo! with a show on Thanksgiving. <laughs> so, so be with us on on Monday morning. Let's close with this prayer at the end of uh, the encyclical. Oh, Mary, Mother of Mercy, watch over all people that the cross of Christ may not be emptied of its power, that man may not stray from the path of the good or become blind to sin, but may put his hope evermore fully in God, who is rich in mercy. May he carry out the good works prepared by God beforehand and so live completely for the praise of his glory. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, a world without end. Amen. God love you. We'll see you on Monday morning.